This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Coming up on today's show, Pope Francis continues his papal visit in our community. We'll speak with Chief Greg Desjardins of the Frog Lake First Nation. What does he think about what he's seen so far? Monkeypox, now a global health threat, according to the World Health Organization. What does that mean to you and me? And more concern about polar bears and humans coming into contact because of landfills. Of course, it follows all the events that took place on Sunday with the arrival and the greeting at the airport and the uh, apology delivered at Musquechis yesterday. And in attendance at both of those events was the chief of Frog Lake First Nation, Greg Desjardins. And uh, we're delighted that Chief Desjardins has time to join us this morning. Chief, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Good morning, Shay. It's uh, my pleasure. Um, Just... uh, if you can sit back, if you've had a chance to reflect on the Sunday and Monday and being part of those events, just how are you feeling about the way things have gone with the Pope's visit thus far? Well, um, first of all, I believe uh, it's long overdue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I heard many people saying they waited decades for an apology. I believe that it's also an individual um experience for all those who are attending. So I think that, uh, in my opinion, you know, I believe it's the start to reconciliation and uh, the TRC calls to action. And it starts that process. And uh, I know some people are upset. I know some people are happy. You know, I, I know some people love the Pope. But I, I, on the same time, same hand, same token, some people are not happy. And Chief, how does that, I mean, that's okay, right? I mean, everybody is at a different point on this journey. Everybody's going to feel differently. It's not a silver bullet, but it's not meant to be. Like you said, it's the start of a process for some people, right? Yes, and, um, you know, uh, reconciliation is never easy. You know, when two parties... Um, disagree, Um, they make up and they move forward. But this one is a little more complex. You know, I think uh, we look at uh, the atrocities that our people have gone through, the the sexual, the mental, the physical abuses, you know, the the denying of our language and our spirit, getting beaten for speaking your, your beautiful tongue, which is connected to the Creator and the Mother Earth. You know, that's what the main, mainstream society don't see. You know, when they say get over it, it's pretty hard to get over when when it, when it has caused a, a generational uh, trauma to our people. You know, being, being naive and being a child and being sent to school at six, seven, eight, nine, and uh, having to think that you have to perform for these individuals... You know, it's been a very uh, challenging time for many of our people. And that's where it kind of segues into addiction and the loss of identity. And uh, our, our people are, are, are hurt. 
You were there when he arrived at the airport. You were there when the apology was delivered at Muscatice. I know you have family connection. I don't know if you want to talk about that. That's up to you. But um, the feelings that you had yesterday in Muscatice, being part of that, um, like you say, a long time coming, what was your reaction initially? I, too, had mixed feelings. I have to uh, be careful uh, how how I, uh, you know, express myself. But I, I think I was happy. I was happy for the survivors that have passed. You know, I was happy that uh, the Pope came because he's one person, he's one man, he's a human being himself. To try and take that weight of all the atrocities of residential school amongst our people, towards our people, and he's trying to make it right. And uh, like I said, it's the beginning of something that I hope is great for the children, the survivors, and and all our families that we could heal and, and walk around down the streets and not be ostracized as, you know, a dirty Indian or something like that. You know, I think mainstream society now, the world knows what has happened. You know, instead of trying to to hide, you know, even even the Canadian government has to own up to it, you know, in their wrongs. You know what, uh, some of the, the leaders of this country back in the early 1900s have delivered an agenda to roll out, you know, and uh, the Indian problem per se. You know, so... I think it's the beginning of something good, even though it hurts right now. You know, we're looking forward to the next steps. What are the next steps? Like you said, this is long overdue and it's much needed and it's a big moment. What are the next steps? What do you want to see next from here, Chief? Well, I think uh, when when you have uh, uh, the Prime Minister, the Governor General, uh, the Premier, you know, the different ministers... Uh, Mark Miller, Patty Haydu were in attendance. And you also have the Vatican. You, you know, and now it's up to to these parties on, on what they want to do. Or it'll only be lip service. Right. You know, we, we have to work together. We're looking for some, some sort of agreement that we're going to make the lives of our people better. You know, how fair is it that, uh, you know... Uh, even now, we opened up a, a new new wounds of our people, you know, so how do we close those wounds? You know, I do want to say uh, I'm thankful for Muscochis yesterday as they were smudging and they were cleansing people because they were hurt. To see men cry, to see these elders cry, you know, and some people pass away into the spirit world without sharing their story. You know, so I think the next steps are the three three levels or four levels, sitting amongst, and even looking at as far back as the papal bulls and rebuking that document. Because us in First Nations country here in Canada, we weren't discovered. Mm-hmm. Chief, I really appreciate you joining us and uh, bringing this perspective. And uh, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. That is, you too. That is Chief Greg Desjardins of the Frog Lake First Nation. And as I said, he was there, part of the greeting committee at the airport on Sunday when Pope Francis arrived. He was also in Muscochise yesterday.
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The latest public health concern you may have heard this weekend, monkeypox, was declared a global health emergency by the World Health Organization. So what does that mean? Well, let's find out. Um, At this point, they're saying international travel kind of under scrutiny to some places, certain parts of Africa. Um, At this point, we've got 16,000 cases in 75 countries. That's as of July 22nd. Canada has seen 681 monkeypox cases as of July 23rd, but those numbers are expected to continue to rise. It is a threat. It is a concern. There's no doubt about it. Um, how big of a concern? Is it something we all need to be aware of? We know that at this point, um, the demographic that's being affected is rather narrow. However, it doesn't discriminate. All of us can be affected by this. So what do we need to know and how much of a concern should we have around this? We're going to chat now with Dr. Stan Houston, who is Professor Emeritus in the Faculty of Medicine and Dentistry in the School of Public Health at the University of Alberta. Um, Dr. Houston, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Hello again, Shay. Uh, Yeah, thanks for your interest. Um, Interesting story. I think whenever you hear things like global health emergency, it sort of makes you go, "Uh uh-oh, what what does that mean? So tell us, that designation, what does that mean to a public health expert like yourself? Well, uh, I I think the most important implication is that it's just uh, kind of um, putting it on everybody's radar and emphasizing uh, raising the stakes uh, a, a little bit. There are some, apparently there's some kind of legal implications about uh, allowing travel restrictions and so on, but that doesn't really apply to uh, to this disease. So mo- mostly it's just um, everybody should uh, be paying attention. And, um, and some, and some, and, and, and countries should be intervening with, with better surveillance and testing and and ramping up access to prevention and treatment. Yeah, you mentioned travel restrictions, and there's been some talk of that to specific parts of the world where the outbreak seems to be centered, but it sounds like most people at this point are saying, yeah, no, we're, we're not at that point yet. That's not something we need to be contemplating. Do you agree? Yeah, no, I, I, travel would not be the uh, practical preventive issue. The, 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 the um the outbreak is in a uh, you know a specific demographic yeah, as yeah. you mentioned, subgroup of men who have sex with men, uh, and it's all over the world. Uh, so uh, the disease has existed in parts of Central and West Africa for probably forever, but certainly we've known about it since uh, 1970. 
and has been a very low risk for uh, travelers. So, so it's travel is not uh, the prevention issue. Now, within the country of Canada, we've got 681 cases. Um, not, I mean, that's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the population, of course, but how concerning is it to see 681 monkeypox cases? Um, is that something that Canadians need to be aware of, or as you say, is it something we're just, we're just continuing to monitor? Well, I, I think uh, we should certainly be aware of it. Um, uh, at, uh, and, and we know from decades of experience in Africa, that this disease is certainly biologically capable of being uh, uh, transmitted to anybody by, by close contact, basically. Uh, and that, that's how it behaved in, in Africa, often, was, often affected children, so that it could um, leak out, so to speak, yep. of, the, of the current uh, demographic but um, I think most uh, people think it's very unlikely that it would be able to I- explode in the, gen- in the general um, Canadian public. Uh, in terms of the demographic, as you mentioned, men who have sex with men, uh, vaccination is being offered. Are we, I've, I've heard that we're not doing as good of a job of letting people know uh, that this is available, as we should be, and, and then getting the vaccine delivered. Uh, are you seeing what that we're handling that appropriately yeah i am I'm, I'm i you know that's a a day-to-day thing yeah uh i i think it's in the process of being ramped up so uh uh takes some effort to communicate to the to, to the high-risk groups and put put in place uh, uh, a system that works for them in terms of that vaccine, it's been around for a long time, right? I mean, it's actually a smallpox vaccine, isn't it? It, it is the smallpox vaccine, although there is a, uh, has been for a number of years, a new, improved and safer smallpox vaccine than the one that was used back in the day to eradicate smallpox. Um, in terms of what the average Canadian needs to be worried about, I mean, like you say, it's in a very narrow demographic, um, the the chain of transmission is well documented it's not something that you're going to catch at the grocery store right i mean this is not something that people need to be overly alarmed about uh that i think is a reasonable thing to say at the present time but um we're we didn't predict this we're not so good at predicting the future so people should um pay attention and stay tuned and i guess uh, I guess I would I, I can't refrain from from mentioning that like COVID, like HIV, this is a disease that's come from animals and it's come from a remote part of the world. And it, we didn't predict it, but we, we didn't expect it. But we have to expect the unexpected nowadays. And perhaps if we paid a little more attention to what was going on in in remote parts of the world and were a little more supportive i mean africa doesn't have access to the where, where the disease is endemic doesn't have access to the vaccine we might be able to respond a little more quickly and a little more effectively to uh to the next um unexpected event um good question on the listener line here somebody said hey if you've got the smallpox shot and a lot of people out there have are you immune is this something that you don't even need to be worried about yeah well i have of course because i'm I just missed it. I was like the year after they ended it, I think. 
um, that era. So uh, the honest answer is we don't know. Okay. Uh, we we uh, we think they're closely related viruses. We think this vaccine uh, will be protective or pretty protective, uh, but we don't we we don't honestly know. It, it kind of looks like the the older age age group that might have had the vaccine don't seem to be getting it um but we're at a a very early stage of um having a good handle on that hey while i've got you one other question there was a story that came out yesterday i don't know if you saw it um wall street journal said hey listen if you're out there walking around thinking you've never had covid you're probably wrong you probably had it and just didn't know the odds that somebody uh, has managed to dodge the COVID bullet so far is very, very low. Now, I've never tested positive. Neither has my wife. Do you think it's possible that we had it and didn't know? Uh, it's definitely possible. Um, I mean, the COVID, of course, is, is such a moving target with the changing, with the changing variants. Uh, and their changing immune response and their somewhat uh, evolution of the symptoms they cause and so on. But in fact, there certainly have been studies of uh, the pop of various population groups t- testing for antibodies yes. that would show exposure, and they certainly show uh, a lot of people uh, who had it that 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 didn't know it. So, um, uh, uh, so yeah, it's absolutely possible. Interesting. What, okay. What what exactly the implications are? Which is what you'd really like. To yeah, know, right. Yeah, is much less clear. That does not mean I uh, you're 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 good to go. Sit in a sit all night in a smoky bar with um, with a bunch of anti-vaxxers, um, uh, and you're protected. No, that's uh, we're still learning about that about the protection implications as well. Uh, just before I let you go, how does something like, and I, I meant to ask this earlier, how does something like monkeypox, which, like you say, has probably been around possibly forever, certainly for 50, 60 years that we've known about, how does it suddenly, what what happens where a virus that's been around for that long and, you know, relatively dormant, not an issue, all of a sudden becomes uh, a health emergency of global concern? How does that happen? Yeah, well, that is the $64 million question that fast, certainly fascinates me. Uh, one theoretical possibility would be that the virus has mutated and changed in its capacity, as, as we've seen with, with COVID. I, I think that there isn't much evidence of that genetically, and I think what is more, uh, what is more likely is that it has just lucked out and landing in the right a kind of culture medium or environment where where uh, transmission is uniquely um, effective. Uh, so I think it's more likely human behavior than than viral genetics. But um, that also uh, is a, a question that we're at an early stage of. Uh, understanding. It is very interesting, though. Uh, Dr. Houston, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks again for your interest, Jay. You bet. That's Dr. Stan Houston, who is a professor emeritus in the Faculty of Medicine and Dentistry and the School of Public Health at the University of Alberta. Uh, A bunch of you uh, texted me, wait, wait, how is it spread? Okay, here's the details. Okay, this is the latest information. This came out in the New England Journal of Medicine, 
just last week. They studied more than 500 cases of monkeypox. As I said, there's there's many more than that, but the sample they took was 500 cases in 16 different countries. They found that 98% of those infected were gay or bisexual, 75% were white, 41% had a prior HIV diagnosis. However, the study emphasizes and clearly notes that while this current outbreak indeed for sure disproportionately affects men who have sex with other men, monkeypox can affect anyone and heterosexual transmission has also been reported, okay? Um, It's primarily transmitted through prolonged close contact. The majority of cases reported in the current outbreak, as I said, involve men involved with other men. But that's not to say that that's the only people who can be infected. Uh, It can infect anybody through prolonged close contact. Let's have a conversation here about polar bears. Um, One of the great iconic Canadian animals, right? And I think, you know, I don't think you have to be paying all that close of attention to know that there's some issues around polar bears. And they've been under pressure for a while. And I don't think that's changed. In fact, there's some new elements that are coming into it. But let's find out for sure what's going on. We're going to have a chat now with Dr. Andrew DeRoche, who is a scientific advisor with Polar Bears International and a professor of biological sciences at the University of Alberta. Doctor, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Ah, happy to be with you. Uh, yeah, I, I know we've all read troubling stories over the past few years about the polar bear population in our country being under pretty intense pressure. What's the latest? What's the status report? Well, it's you know, we've got 13 different populations of polar bears in Canada, and it's uh, not a one-size-fits-all sort of situation. So we've got three populations that we know have declined in abundance, but we've got 10 populations that are kind of hanging on okay for now. So it really depends on what happens with sea ice, and Mm. that really affects the bears. Yeah, I mean, that's what it all comes down to. Everything that goes on with polar bears is affected by the sea ice, right? That's right. I mean, that's the habitat. That's where they live. And it's the same as any other species. If you take away the habitat, you just lose the animals that live there. Now, the the story that came out this week, and uh, your organization was part of it, talking about how landfills are really becoming a problem. Is it, and part of it, I think, is because the bears are spending more time on land, right? I mean, if they're on the ice, if the ice is available, they're not on land as much. Is that sort of where this all starts? That's exactly it. And so it's a, it's what we really sort of call an emerging issue across the Arctic. Um, and as the bears are spending more time on land, and of course they're nutritionally stressed because they're not having as much time to hunt, so they're skinnier. And it's the same as in Alberta here. We know if you get a bad berry crop in the mountains, the bears come down and come around where people live. And it's no different in the Arctic. Um, hungry bears are problem bears. They food-seek. And they come around communities, around camps, and around people. And then we get into conflicts. And one of two things happen. Either either the bear ends up dead or we end up having people injured, which is something we have seen recently in Canada. Yeah, when we talk about an increase in human-bear conflicts, I mean, what are we talking about here? Like one a year, a hundred a year? I mean, how often is this happening? Well, you know, it's hard to quantify... um, whether or not we're seeing a really strong trend or if we're just getting better reporting of incidents. Um, there was one case that just sort of happened uh, this last week in Russia where you might have seen it in the media where a polar bear got a tin can stuck on its tongue. The bear had to be caught 
and have the tin can removed and then released. So it's hard to know if we're seeing lots of increases, but what is clear is we're seeing different types of events happening in different parts of the Arctic, and it's across all five Arctic nations that have polar bears. Um, and, and we sort of go through a whole different series of events. Some, some of them are chronic issues where the bears come back every year, and sometimes it's just episodic. It's sort of like ephemeral. It just happens, and one year you get all these bears showing up around a dump, and then they disappear for years again at a time. Um, how are we doing, like you say, there's different populations in different countries. In Canada, do we have a situation with the landfills, and is it a right across? I mean, I know, as a guy who lives in the city, whenever I go out to bear country, be it Banff or Canmore, I mean, and, and these are even urban, the, the precautions and, and the infrastructure that's in place to make sure that the bears don't get attracted into the city, it's pretty extensive. There's no landfills that I know of. Yeah, it's, you know, the the problem with, with landfills is if you look across the Arctic, we've got growing populations in the north. And, of course, everything we ship from the south goes north and it never comes back again. We don't recycle in the north very much or any at all. So we've got these open landfills. And, and historically, it's not been a big problem for polar bears because... They just never came in to use them. And it's not a preferred food source for them. It's sort of they only go there when the sea ice melts, and then they typically come into these places, and they get into all sorts of trouble. Um, they eat things they shouldn't that can kill them. Uh, and, of course, it's it's not a great scenario for having bears right next to a community because eventually they do tend to wander in because you have to remember in a lot of northern towns, um, people are living off the land substantially, taking their food back to their houses, processing it there. And, of course, that's a perfect attractant to bring bears right into your house. And it's not a one-time thing. If a bear has um, sort of associated a location with uh, easy food, it'll keep coming back, right? Yeah, that's that's a real problem. I mean, we talk about habituated bears, and that's one of the problems. And bears are probably what we would call like a one-time learner. Once they get that association, they've got it figured out. And they'll come back year after year to the same place trying to get that food resource. What's the solution here? What do we, I mean, how do we, how do we, obviously the sea ice is part of an issue, but I mean, a lot of it is around adaptation, right? We talk about that in so many areas when it comes to the changing climate. What, what do we need to do on this front? Well, you know, if you go to northern communities, people are saying that garbage is a problem. And they've they've had that on their list of priorities for years. And sort of this emerging threat of polar bears coming into the dumps is sort of a growing problem for, for these communities. I mean, it's going it, to, it can't fall to the community level. They just don't have the resources, the tax bases to deal with the problem. So it has to go up to the provincial and territorial levels. And the federal government has to get involved to find better solutions for dealing with either recycling or disposing of garbage in a way that keeps it away from wildlife. Yeah, and I imagine, like 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 we said earlier, Doc, there, there's places you can learn from. I mean, this is being done when it comes, and not just polar bears, but for other bears. I mean, there's systems in place. There are, yes, there are, and and you know we have had good examples. Churchill, Manitoba, uh, the polar bear capital of the world, uh, used to have an open dump for for decades. Um, they eventually closed that off and tried to recycle. The problem is now in Churchill 
is they've actually got a building full of four years of garbage. And I was talking to the mayor of Churchill when I was up there this spring, and they don't know what to do with it. They've got to get it out of that building. Eventually, they're going to run out of place to just store their garbage. Um, So there there needs to be some sort of pan-Arctic approach here to dealing with, with waste. We keep moving it north, but we never deal with it. It just ends up sitting on the ground. Yeah, okay. Boy, a great update, Doctor. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. It's been my pleasure. That is Dr. Andrew DeRoche, who is the Scientific Advisor with Polar Bears International, Professor of Biological Sciences at the University of Alberta. And uh, he also wrote the book Polar Bears, A Complete Guide to Their Biology and Their Behavior. He's been studying bears for 38 years. Uh, so uh, he's, uh, he's an expert on, on the uh, situation surrounding polar bears, not just in our country, but around the world. But, you know, you take a look at this situation, it's like, it, this is entirely our fault, right, with the garbage. And I, the part that I don't understand is I know how much work is done in other parts of the... Of, like, just think of Alberta, right? The, the work that goes into keeping bears away from garbage and things like that. Got to somehow try and apply some of those... Um, practices in other parts of the country. As he said, though, they're doing it in Churchill, but now they're running out of space. Can you imagine a building full of garbage that they've been filling for years? Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.